Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. I live in Virginia, and Virginia is really lousy when it comes to formal school choice. Yet I often will say that I have school choice thanks to a variety of factors, not least of which being my brilliant and educationally-minded wife, that let me choose the right option for my kids. So why shouldn't this be something that everyone can take advantage of? In fact, I've had a front-row seat to the challenges of building a new micro-school over the past few months as my wife and a fearless band of others have started a new learning community here in our town. And you know what? It isn't easy. What starts as a way to help kids thrive in the best educational environment for them turns into staffing decisions, presentations to zoning committees, fire marshal inspections, hurt feelings, and a lot of sweat equity. Thank goodness, then, there are groups like the ones we are featuring today, all of whom are helping parents find or build the right education option for their kids. First up, we're going to hear from National Microschooling Center on the trend of small schools like our own. Then we'll hear about Black Minds Matter, which is changing the narrative around school choice in black communities and connecting black school leaders in new ways. Finally, we'll talk to Love Your School on how it simplifies the process for parents choosing among the growing number of schooling options available. If you worry that American schooling is a mess, or if you're concerned that the school choice battle is too hard or too incremental, these conversations will give you some hope and optimism. So let's get right to it. We'll start today zooming in on micro schools. As I mentioned, this is a topic that is near and dear to my daily life right now. And so I'm very excited to talk to Ashley and Don Sofer of the National Micro Schooling Center. Don serves as the CEO and Ashley as the Chief Innovation Officer. And with their team, they are working across the country in states to help build a micro schooling revolution. So there's so much going on with this micro schooling trend. It's not even a word that people were uttering a few years ago, at least not in, in wide circles. How, what is it and how is it different than other types of school choice? Thanks, Peter, and uh, thanks for having us. This is a great conversation. We've been looking forward to it. So I'll start. Microschooling, microschools are innovative small learning environments. They look different in different states. Only a couple states actually have definitions of a microschool in, in their rules and requirements. Um, microschools, depending on where they are, can be small private schools, accredited or unaccredited. They can be learning centers set up to serve families observing the homeschool requirements in their particular state. They can be Tiny, I think we find that the median size for a microschool is about 12. Microschooling in America is, is a totally diversified movement. People come from all walks of life and all possible backgrounds. It's a fast-growing movement. It's permissionless. These are millions of American families that have just stopped being patient and waiting for government to solve all their problems and took their control back of their children's educational learning trajectories and decided to launch microschools on their own. And what they're doing is, is incredible. 
One thing that I really love about microschooling is that it's community. It's relationship-based. It's an educator knowing the child, knowing the family, and really the families knowing each other and, and being there as a support for each other to, to build this amazing community where everybody is just all in for each of the children that attend the microschool. Do you find that there's a bias toward kind of conservative, for lack of a better word, libertarian type people with this because of that permissionless aspect and, you know, they want to do stuff outside of the state or does it really just go everywhere? It really goes everywhere. I think something that's very exciting about this movement is that we have folks from every end of the political spectrum um, and, and people that, that know lawmakers or in, in circles with lawmakers on both um, conservative and progressive sides. It's, it's a movement that really is welcoming to everyone. There's a space for everybody in the microschooling movement, and everybody is welcome. So National Microschooling Center, what is it built to do? We are the nation's leading nonprofit movement builders for a thriving, diversified, sustaining microschool sector. We work in every state. It looks different all across the country. And whether they're, we see three types of microschools. We see independent microschools. We see partnership microschools, such, such as the one that we ran for the city of North Las Vegas during the pandemic. Partnerships can be between a host partner, which can be an employer, a house of worship, a professional association, and a technical partner who provides the teaching and learning. And then we're all um, increasingly familiar with provider networks, whether they be Acton or Prenda or Kaipod or Primer, that uh, particularly in the ESA-friendly states are taking a, a large share of the current market growth. And sometimes it's easier for a family or an educator that wants to launch a microschool but just doesn't have the confidence to stand up the whole program on their own. So they work with a provider network and that's having a good bit of success at all. So those are the three types of microschools that we see. And the latest estimates are between one and two million learners across the country are relying on microschools as their primary source of education. I don't say full-time because hybrid arrangements, less than full-time arrangements are extremely popular in microschooling and for good reasons because they meet the needs of the families that rely on them. Yeah, the one we have is a hybrid model. It's three days of core learning and then two days taking advantage of the natural beauty of our area and kind of being outside and applying one big macro question that cuts across all five days, a lot of flexibility in that. Um, it's interesting what you said, though, about those different types. You know, you mentioned Acton Academies, Jeff Sandifer and Laura Sandifer's schools, which are great all over the place. Um, and I'd never really thought of those as a micro school. But you're right. I mean, this this term is so elastic that it can include a lot of pre-existing ideas. It can include new ideas, uh, all kinds of stuff. That's right. And we talk about microschooling like it's this exciting, sexy new trend in American education. And it really is, to us, the most exciting storyline in generations in American education. But then again, to say that it's new is not exactly right either, because the 1873 model of a microschool is an extremely popular one in this country right now, maybe updated by some of the technologies and, and what we've learned about pedagogy ever since. But Obviously, these are the high holy days. The Orthodox Jews have been doing this for a whole lot longer than that. It's just extremely popular right now in this country and for good reasons. Yeah, it puts a name on something that people are kind of doing anyway, and, and, and that can help. Naming something can be a big deal. So you're set up as a membership organization. The House Mountain Learning Cooperative is, is now a member. What does that mean? What does the membership component mean? Why have that structure? Yeah, well, first, thank you for being a member. We're super excited to have you in the community. Um, yeah, we're set up as a membership structure for several different reasons. Um, it's a, a low annual fee of $100, and that gives every staff member at your micro school access to the uh, membership platform. 
And those funds, we never want to use the, the $100 fee as any of our operating costs. We're, again, a, a nonprofit. Um, so we earmark those funds to go back to the state where the member has signed up. So if there's uh, several microschool founders in Virginia that want to get together and, and they want to do a microschooling awareness event, we can look and say, hey, awesome, we've got five members in Virginia and here's $500 to, to use for your event. Um, so we really like to put those funds back to the states where they're coming from. And for our members, we do twice monthly meetings. Um, we do one member meeting. We've heard from a lot of the microschool founders that they just really want a chance to get together and talk to each other. That microschooling can sometimes feel like you're out on an island doing your own thing and, and they're realizing that they don't need to be alone doing this alone. They want that community. So we do one meeting a month where members can just get together and talk about, hey, here's this barrier I'm experiencing. Has anybody else experienced this? Are there any resources? Or, hey, here's this cool thing I'm doing. Does anybody else want to jump in and, and do this with us? It's really fun when we see that cross collaboration among different microschool founders throughout the different states that we work in. Um, and then we also do um, a training meeting, whether that's bringing in a, a guest speaker to come and talk about um, a certain element, or sometimes we use Daniel Sir, our senior fellow for legal affairs. He'll come in and do great trainings. Uh, one that he did that was really popular was on microschooling handbooks and why those matter. Um, we also, speaking of Daniel, he's available for our members that find themselves in any sort of regulatory issues or hurdles to help um, if they get a, a knock on their door or if a cease and desist letter comes their way, he's available to, to work with our members and help them pro bono. Daniel's a fine lawyer uh, and a good guy, and I am uh, glad to glad to know that that's a, <laughs> a perk of the membership. That's good stuff. So yeah. I mean, as you talk to all these leaders, what is the obstacle to them doing this? I mean, clearly, they're, they if they're going to come talk to you in the first place, maybe they kind of want to do it. What stops them? Is it zoning? Is it their own mental blocks? Uh, what is it? Yeah, that's a really great question. And oftentimes that the answer to that depends on the state that they're in. Sometimes, like you said, it is zoning, right? We worked with um, an amazing micro school in Las Vegas who she was running a phenomenal entrepreneur-based uh, micro school, teaching kids how to start their own businesses and all the different aspects that come with that. And unfortunately, because of zoning and regulations, she ended up with a clause on her business license that only allowed her to have three children at a time for three hours a day, which did not work for her. So she um, you know, had to find a different location. And, and so that was that was a huge barrier for her. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's zoning, sometimes it's um, finding the, a facility that works for them in a way to keep their costs low. So we often talk to people that come to us and they're like, hey, I've got this idea. We talk about different facilities that they could use, whether it's reaching out to a local house of worship to see if they have space available. Um, we've had great luck having micro school founders partner with owners of dance studios. If there's a dance studio that's only being used in the evening for after school classes, they love to have somebody bringing more kids into their space during the day. Um, sometimes it's access to, to learning tools as a barrier. Um, we work with folks like Lexia, uh, ST Math, iReady, iXL, who are used to working with large school districts and they um, require a bulk license purchase. So if you want to use iReady in your micro school, you have to purchase that bulk set of licenses, which just is not feasible for micro school founders. Um, so we've been able to work with these providers, these learning tool providers, and handle the contract management where we can purchase the bulk license and then let micro school founders take what they need at cost, whether they need four licenses or 50. Don, you probably have a few different ideas about some of the other barriers that you've heard as well. 
So when we first looked at this, about 70% of micro-school founders were recently or currently licensed educators. That number is falling and continuing to fall. So um, we, as the micro-schooling center, love to work and support. We don't try to make anybody anything that they're not, but help them work with their families, understand what the needs are that they're looking to solve, and build something that specifically meets the needs of the specific learners that they're looking to help, and because microschools can be built around those needs, that's why they're different. That's why this is something completely different than other areas of school choice. And you also get the policy problems. I mean, you've got 28 states you're in, and presumably we'll be doing more, but that's 28 sets of rules and regulations. You know, Virginia is very different than West Virginia right now. Um, what are the biggest challenges on the policy front that parents face to just having the freedom to, to take advantage of these alternatives? Sure, we talk about homeschooling like it's some sort of biblical right, but in fact, it really wasn't legal in this country and recognized until the mid-1980s. So depending on where it is that you're working, um, sometimes it's easier for a microschool to open as a learning center under the homeschool requirements. Sometimes an accredited or especially an unaccredited private school is a path that makes a whole lot of sense because accreditation is something like many aspects of the frameworks in which we work that had not anticipated the rise of a vibrant homeschooling, microschooling movement. So because the regulatory apparatus, and not just education requirements, but zoning and land use and, and all of the other childcare rules, everything else in, that defines the framework in which microschools need to operate, are a regulatory apparatus that had not anticipated the growth of American microschooling. So a lot of the time we need to work with policymakers and decision makers to update and modernize the frameworks so that microschools can thrive. If we have this conversation again in five years, 10 years, what is the micro-schooling landscape look like out there? We work hard to avoid defining micro-schooling in any sort of rigid, restraining way because micro-schooling is constantly evolving. All sorts of really compelling leaders are constantly pushing the envelope on innovation and on disruptive innovation in ways that they, they can do in a micro-school because micro-schooling so often is about providing an opportunity that just wouldn't be possible under any other way. Even under the private school rules in so many states are so restrictive that to deliver a truly le child-centered learning environment or a true Montessori small learning environment just doesn't even work under the state's private school laws. So as our incredible innovators, and it's, it's the exciting people of the micro-schooling movement that make, makes this so compelling, are constantly pushing Innovation. I mean, you look at what OutSchool, a terrific organization, is working to define their own ways of doing microschooling that push the envelope even further. So in five years, who knows what it's going to look like? We're just trying to make sure that the regulatory and statutory requirements don't lock microschooling in that would prevent it from, from continuing to become more and more innovative. You want to add anything to that, Ashley? I think I'd just like to echo what Don said about it being the exciting people that are driving this movement. and and really looking to them to see where it's going to go in the next five years. It's really one of my favorite things is when we get a phone call from somebody saying, hey, I've got this idea, and they're doing just a brand new program that brings together a bunch of different philosophies, or they're doing something completely outside the box that we've never heard of before. And like Don said, just ensuring that these folks are able to continue to do what they're doing and to continue to be innovative and grow and and create new solutions for the families that are actually in their community and solutions that work for the children that they're serving is the most crucial element in moving forward with the movement. Well, it's so important to have a resource that folks can turn to as they look for the right way to, to educate their kids. Every, every kid needs something different. My, 
oldest is in public school and my youngest is part of our homeschool co-op program. And, you know, that works for both of them. And that's the case that's replicated all across America. And so we appreciate the National Microschooling Center being there to help coordinate some of that. Donna and Ashley, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm breaking one of my personal rules with this next guest by having a repeat uh, organization featured. We talked with American Federation for Children back in episode three of the Giving Ventures podcast, but this project of AFC is too unique and too good not to feature here in this conversation. Denisha Allen started Black Minds Matter as a project of AFC in 2020, and it has grown into one of the most important advocates of and champions for Black families in search of educational options that really let their children thrive. Black Minds Matter works to celebrate Black minds, support excellence, and promote the development of high-quality school options for Black students. Denisha, in all the debates about school choice, we don't actually hear enough from the kids who actually are helped by these programs, but you were. You benefited from Florida's school choice program, which is amazing. Before we dive into Black Minds Matter, will you just talk for a second about what having that choice option in Florida meant for you? For sure. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for having me on. Very, um, I appreciate it so much. So um, I tell people I was thrust into this space of education reform because it's really true. I benefited from a tax credit scholarship in Florida from sixth to 12th grade and it changed my life. I went from making D's and F's, believing I would become a high school dropout or a teen parent, to making A's and B's, being the first person in my family to graduate from high school, undergrad, and receiving my master's degree. Um, And that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have the opportunity to go to a different school. And I don't say it as a cliche because I know it can sound kind of cliche-ish, but I have five siblings and only two of us got our high school diploma. My mom didn't graduate from high schools. I, I have uncles, aunts, cousins who didn't graduate from high school. And that's pretty much the norm in my family. You kind of get sucked in by the streets. And that didn't happen. And the only reason why it didn't happen is because my godmother put me in a different environment. Her income was not that much higher than my biological family. And so we got a scholarship. Um, It changed everything. I went from being in a neighborhood school where... Everyone was high needs. We came into this, everyone was high poverty, high risk for dropping out. And I went to, it was an all black school, but it was so much more diverse. Um, I went to school with kids whose parents worked full-time jobs. They were lawyers, they were doctors, um, pastors, kids, you know. And so it was a very different environment. The teachers were different. It couldn't have been more different. And... I, I credit my experience to to freedom, and that's kind of how I got thrust into this space, just sharing my story, sharing about how I wish that my family, my, my siblings could have taken advantage of the same opportunities that I had. But then for every other kid in my state, that's how it started, and now every kid in the country. It's such a good point, too, that diversity is a lot more than just color of the skin, too. That's that's so good. So you started in the education department under 
Secretary DeVos during the Trump administration went over to American Federation for Children doing family outreach. But then the world blew up in 2020 and yada, 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 Black Minds Matter. So fill in the gap there on how you went from your role at AFC into creating this this great enterprise. Yeah, no, it's so funny because, yeah, I went, for, I had many different roles in my, and I've, I've been at AFC now this, this year, um, September actually is now four years, I think. And so I, I've had three different uh, roles. And so, yes, I came in after the department working with Secretary DeVos being the director of family engagement. Um, and I'm, one of my duties while I was working at the department was to engage and connect with all of these people at the federal level who'd benefited from school choice or had a education story that was kind of parallel to education freedom. So maybe they stayed within, which is still school choice, you know, really expanded that definition of rethinking education. And so my role at AFC was kind of, you know, tailored and um, parallel to that role that I had doing the same amount of same type work at AOC, connecting with beneficiaries of choice from the teacher, the parent, the student level, um, and building them up into advocates and keeping that connection with them. Then COVID, and I actually was the director of communications, not director of communications, I was the director of content marketing and something, it was a long title, oh my gosh. And um, and then I wrote an op-ed that resonated um, called Black Minds Matter. This was in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd and the country was in civil unrest. We were looking internally at our systems, everyone trying to say, oh, are we racist? Do we have any racist policies? Are we really trying to better African-Americans in this country? And how can we do it better? This was a time of racial reckoning and people were considering things like diversity and inclusion differently. Some good came out of it. We were canceling pancakes and syrup. But of course, one of the things that's near and dear to my heart, education. We weren't canceling the dismal academic outcomes for black kids in this country. Only 14% of black kids in this country read on grade level what are we doing? Is that Aunt Jemima pancake and syrup company really going to help with some of these big issues? The kids who are not graduating from high school knowing how to read, we know where they're going. We've coined a term for it. We call it the school to prison pipeline. They're going into crime and vice. And then we have a larger issue on our hands. And and so that that resonated with a lot of people and so we built it out we built out this movement that we have today and um it's so much fun so let's talk a little bit about this movement i know you had to delay slightly our recording time because you had to go on fox news uh, fox business and you know do some punditry is that is the black minds matter piece mostly that kind of punditry or is it more what are the other pieces beyond just messaging yeah so messaging is a very important and one of the one of the things that I do I do a lot I'm often in the media often writing and trying to change the larger narrative around school choice obviously we have a very catchy name black minds matter so we we want people to hear 
this message of education freedom in a different way. We want to say education freedom. We want to call truth to power when folks are taking advantage of school choice for their own kids, but not allowing or passing bills or supporting legislation to allow lower income black kids to take that same opportunity but in in addition to changing the larger narrative we're connecting with black school founders and so on our website blackmindsmatter.net we actually house and maintain the first and only directory of black founded schools and we connect with these black school founders they in themselves like their very existence is a direct myth buster to all of these myths around school choice these are black educators we did a survey so that's something else that we're we're starting to get our feet wet in the white papers and all this kind of stuff we have two so far and we did a survey of the black school founders we found them the majority of them were former public school teachers. All of them served in the public school system. Some of them were coaches, principals, you know, uh, social worker type. And But most of them were public school teachers. They decided that they hit a ceiling and they couldn't help anymore. They couldn't help our babies. So they decided to found a school. So these are black educators. These are, they're voting Democrat. Most of them vote Democrat. Only 2% of them identify as Republican. And they say that they're involved in their school choice coalitions in their states. So you have to add all of those those pieces together and they're a direct myth buster. And so the other thing that we're doing, which is kind of new, it keeps in changing the narrative. We want to make school choice sexy. Um, school choice is still very policy and not very catchy. One thing that I found that you know, on on the the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of the other movements on the left tend to do, and well, they tend to use us as a political football. But the thing that they do do a good job of is just dumbing down stuff. You know, it may be totally off and wrong, but they dumb it down so much that it's an easy grasp for people to just catch on to. So that's something that I hope to do with Black Minds Matter to to dumb our policies down a, a little bit so that people get it. Um, and the thing is people understand what good and bad looks like. So I'll just tell people like, you know that public school is trash. It was trash when you went there. Now your kids are going to a trashy school. You know that that school is not doing good. Let's get them into a different school. Would you like $8,000 to send your kid to a better school? Yes, is the answer. And so some of that is um, we've been able to do historical highlights. And so this year we launched a, a self-determined art exhibit. Um, the title of it is Self-Determined, The Secret History of Education Freedom. And it's an art exhibit we've toured to five states now. And we showcase the history of education in the African-American community from the time of slavery to present day, um, highlighting the, the, that slaves were, you know, learning and reading. It was illegal for them to learn and read, but that the freedom of the mind, the freedom of the body were not disconnected. It was one in the same from the One Worm Schoolhouse, Julius Rosenwald, Booker T. Washington, that partnership, to now where we have like full circle where education entrepreneurs are able to 
build and house schools because of school choice programs. I think sometimes people are so used to hearing the doom and gloom and almost come to expect it that a message of hope and a, a actual real tangible path out of the bad stuff can almost be too overwhelming. So I think your, your goal of trying to dumb it down, as you say, to change the message, to make it more sexy, I think is, is, is right on. So as we kind of wrap up here, just real quick, what effect do you see from all of this ESA legislation that's going on? And I guess more importantly, do you feel like black families have a seat at the table in these discussions or are being reached out to so that they can take advantage of these things in Arizona and Iowa and Oklahoma and West Virginia, et cetera? You know, I think a lot of the organizations that I work with, you know, um, in a lot of the state think tanks, a lot of the people who are drafting these policies, people who are out in the community, they are coming into the African-American community. They want to figure out how they can get the right voices at the table, get the right people at the table in order to craft these policies. And so I think it's I think it's happening. Um People often reach out to me, to Black Minds Matter, to use, which I definitely want, so anybody who's listening to this podcast, um, to use the logo, use the framing, use the narrative, use the language in order to reach, you know, African-American communities, which I'm totally for. And so I think it's happening. We definitely want more of it. And I definitely encourage the Black community to do the work, too to email lawmakers, to reach out to state advocacy organizations. Um, A lot of implementation work is happening to get parents enrolled on programs. So in Florida and Arizona, Iowa, Utah, some of these places that are now passing universal um, uh, choice uh, programs. Uh, Even in Nebraska, the program was repealed by the teachers union, but there was a big uh, concerted effort um, by the Nebraska School Choice Group to educate families about the scholarship program to enroll them. And we see that happening a lot. And so we just want more. I would encourage the everyday person to reach out to their lawmakers because it's become so easy now. Like I'm a fan of ChatGPT. And so before we were like, oh, we got to write a letter to our, you know, uh, congressmen and women. We create uh, uh, platforms like um, not Mailchimp, the uh, phone to action, where it'll send a big bulk email to like all the lawmakers. All you got to do is sign your name. Well, ChatGPT can do the same thing. Just type in a prompt. It'll write the letter for you. Email that to your lawmaker. It's becoming so easy to do outreach to lawmakers now. And I think that's something we we definitely need to do. Well, what we definitely need is you to continue to build this. It's been amazing to watch Black Minds Matter grow over the past few years uh, since I know we first learned about it over at Donors Trust. And so, Denisha Allen, congratulations on all you've built and, and keep going. Thank you so much, Peter. Our final group has its promise and mission right there in the name. Love Your School offers a platform for any parent to determine the right schooling choice for them and their kids. While only in certain states for now, it's a model ready to build, which is probably why it's a nominee for the Gregor G. Peterson Prize, which we heard about in last week's episode. Jenny Clark started Love Your School, I guess because raising five kids is not enough uh, to fill your plate. So Jenny, Love Your School launched as a nonprofit right around the start of COVID. So, you know, interesting time to uh, to be starting something in the first place. And then last year, Arizona comes along and passes this historic 
universal education savings account, making the work you're doing even more important. So how has your work evolved in light of that ESA? And what trends are you seeing from parents there in Arizona? Oh my gosh. Well, Peter, thanks so much for having me on. I know sometimes when I hear and I'm reminded that we launched at the beginning of COVID, I just can't even believe it. Like that's when we became a nonprofit. Um, But when we first started, we started because I struggled myself to navigate the special education evaluation system in my state. And I felt like a really capable mom and and I still really struggled. I was like homeschooling at the time. We were leading a cottage school. And at the end of that process, I found out about Arizona's uh, Empowerment Scholarship Account Program. So we refer to it as an ESA in other states, education savings accounts. And once I navigated that whole process, got my two oldest boys on ESA who have dyslexia, I stopped and went, oh my gosh, how did I not know about this program years earlier? We qualified for it years earlier. And that kind of was the fire um, that started Love Your School, this desire and this need to help families navigate um, all of the different facets of their child's K-12 education. So when we first launched, a lot of it was the special education evaluations. It was trying to um, help families get on an ESA if they qualified, which a lot of them did not, even though they wanted it. Uh, So fast forward now, we've got universal ESA. Every K-12 student qualifies and is eligible for an ESA. And we have the pleasure of walking alongside families as they're looking for the school option that's best for them or starting an option. Um, And that might be a micro school, it might be a district school, it might be a charter school, might be an ESA. Uh, So to say that we've been busy (laughs) the last year is an understatement. And you've seen all this growth. You've got this website that kind of serves as a central hub. You also have some other resources, uh, Arizona Innovation Hub, social media, lots of different ways for people to get support. So how talk to us about all that. How are you engaging with parents to help them find good educational choices? So uh, when we first started, it was, you know, just me doing all that with my limited knowledge and Googling for families once they would tell me about their child. But now we've got this really uh, cool system and an amazing team that I'm super proud of. So um, we actually have 17 members here in Arizona. We have three in West Virginia, hopefully more in other states coming soon. And families come to us primarily through referrals. We do very, very little uh, marketing. We build relationships and partnerships with with schools, with other nonprofits. We go to every event that will have us. And families come to us and say, I need help with X, Y, and Z. It can be really anything. It can be my students not reading. I just want to know, you know, what options are out there for my preschooler who's going to be five next year. Um, It could be we're thinking about moving. It could be we want to know more about ESA. So they come to us and we um, have a really great back-end CRM system where we do an intake call, an intake form, and then we decide based on what the parent has said that their needs are for their child, which one of our team members is going to be the best fit, whether it's, you know, our special education, team member, whether it's our ESA expert, whether it's our homeschool expert. And from there, our team members um, build a a service relationship for free with those families to ensure that they have access to all the information they need uh, related to their child's K-12 education. That seems like a very hands-on intensive process, but I guess some parents don't necessarily have to call. They could just use the website resources and poke around. 
That's exactly right. So uh, even in our system, we track like what they're coming for and how long they have like an open um, ticket and like service from our team. So we really get a chance to see, oh, families that are coming to us um, for ESA questions, we typically are able to, I mean, we respond to everyone in 48 hours, but we're able to answer that question and get it taken care of within 72 hours. But families that are maybe coming and saying, hey, my kid's being bullied and this is what's going on at the school and with the teacher and with the other kids, we might serve that family for six months. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I personally felt was really lacking and, and needed in this whole, you know, school choice movement and experiment was that long-term personalized support for parents where it wasn't, hey, you know, here's a flyer about all your choices. It was, okay, we want to dig into this with you because we feel like if we can help you and your student now, that's going to change their trajectory you know, up and up through the age of 18. And we want to, we want to solve those easy problems, but we also want to dig in and solve the really hard problems for families. You know, antagonists of school choice often make the argument that ESAs and vouchers and school choice by a million different names are all quote unquote going to kill public education. Now you include public education as one of the options in your website. So what is your sense in talking to parents about their relationship to public schools, particularly as the ESAs come online? Uh, I love that question. So I went to public school. I graduated from public school right here in Arizona, kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, I see some of my you know, same teachers at the grocery store here. And my whole point in saying that is I love public school. There's a lot of uh, families who are having incredible positive experiences in their district school, in charter schools, in Arizona and across the country. We want to encourage that. We want those schools to thrive because we're all about the parents and parent choice. So if a parent is loving their district school, we're not trying to take them out of that. What we want to make sure they know if they're coming to us is what their options are and furthermore, what their rights are. There's a lot of times when families come to us and maybe we get through the end of a process with them and they're like, okay, this was a lot. What are your recommendations? And we say, you know what, based on what you've told us about your family, based on what we've processed with your students, all these different things, it sounds like you should stay in your public school. And so we really try to emphasize that message with folks that are very um, upset about the ESA program with the teachers unions and other different groups that have, you know, popped up. We, we try to explain to them, listen, we want what's best for the kiddo. And you know, and we know at Love Your School and the school choice side, that the typical public school environment is just not the best for every student. So let's make sure that those kids and those families know what their choices are. And to be honest, I have met plenty of teachers. I've met superintendents where I've kind of said to them, you know, behind the scenes, like, hey, it's okay. Like, tell me what you really think about ESA. Like, what are you really worried about? And a lot of them will say to me, I'm not worried because I know my school's doing an amazing job. And I'm glad that if my school's not working out, I can tell that family they've got the option of the ESA. So we hear one thing publicly, but I think under the surface, there are a lot of folks, even in the public school system, that still are supportive of programs like ESAs. I saw in poking around the website that uh, Schoola Hoop it powers some of your search, which is a project of Foundation for American Innovation, one of their quiet projects that I don't think they get a lot of attention for, but it's a great, great tool they've built that allows some of this search. Uh, 
how are you working with them, with other groups? Because as you say, you started just kind of Googling around. Now you <laughs> have to have to lean on some others, I imagine, to get all this done. Absolutely. I, I'm like all about finding ways where we can utilize technology in the process of providing that, you know, human connection and support to families. And School of Hoop um, was just a beautiful and natural solution and collaboration uh, for us at Love Your School. So we are very fortunate uh, to uh, receive funding so that School of Hoop could be here in Arizona and on our website. We're kind of the like exclusive vendor of them right now. And it just gave us another way as we're dealing with so many families and doing those intakes to say, hey, step one, check out School of Hoop and let's look at what you know search options are there and what things pop up. Um, because we do think that since we have the opportunity to personalize School of Hoop, it's so much better and robust than what you're going to get um, just, you know, Googling around or using some other platforms. And we're able then to, um, if the parent wants, get connected to them through just their School of Hoop search and tell them, hey, you know, we saw that you clicked here, that you want more support um, about ESA because you looked at a school. And we're able to build stronger connections with families that may just be coming through the website for a search. And then we would never know who they were or we would never see them. Now we have the op opportunity to connect uh, with those families by their use of School of Hoop on our website. So yeah, we love those guys and are very thankful for their work. Well, and I know they're looking to expand into other states too. So, so donors out yeah. there who want to expand that funding, you know, you're helping two groups for the price of one. Right. Uh, so you're in Arizona and the information for on Arizona, very robust. You have an affiliate in West Virginia building that up. That's obviously really important to um, now you got Iowa, Oklahoma, Utah. I'm probably forgetting some others that have recently added ESAs gives you a lot of opportunity. So what is the growth path? for Love Your School? Are you destined, hoping to be in all 50 states? <laughs> I, I'd like to say we're destined, but uh, we'll see We'll see what, you know, what the next year holds. We do have a very strong desire uh, to be in three more states uh, in the coming year. And the, the total goal and reason for that is that we have seen the absolute need for the high-touch parent support in order to make these programs, these ESA programs successful. Uh, when a parent is, you know, already at a private school and a universal ESA comes around, they, you know, very quickly will utilize the ESA for their private school tuition. It's the parents that are looking to switch that are going, okay, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to, you know, try this ESA thing. I'm going to leave the public school system because my student needs it, or I want to launch a micro school or, Hey, can you help me collaborate with a group of other ESA parents and we can hire a teacher? It's those parents, um, that are going to need the support to do the really innovative things because it's, it's scary. It's scary. It's your child. And we want to enable those parents and support them if they status quo maybe isn't working for them. So we want to be in those other states that are either passing ESAs or that need that on the ground parent support, uh, to just educate them about, about ESAs and help them kind of see what they're missing in other states. That's a lot of our work in West Virginia. We helped our team there launch a really cool podcast called We Have Hope. And the whole vision behind We Have Hope in West Virginia is to help the West Virginia families um, bridge the imagination gap by talking about, look what you know, Arizona families are doing with their ESAs. Look what Iowa families, Florida families are doing with their ESAs. And then highlighting local schools, micro schools, and vendors in West Virginia just to get parents thinking, huh, I could do that. Um, so we hope to be doing that and providing that parent support and innovating 
uh, in, in more states in the near future. I think that's great. I guess every, every parent out there wants to know the best options for their kids. And you at Love Your School have made it a little easier, at least in Arizona and West Virginia, soon to be in many other states, to find those options. Jenny Clark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Any parent listening to these discussions will certainly resonate with the challenges around finding the right educational options and will, I hope, be excited to know there are good groups helping to smooth out those rough roads. I appreciate how Don and Ashley Sofer reframed the discussion of micro-schooling to remind us that parents have been forging new paths on education for a long time. Now, there's just a bit more permission to be permissionless, not least because there are more resources to turn to, like his own group, but also what Denisha Allen has built with Black Minds Matter, as well as the growing discovery tools Jenny Clark's Love Your School offer. So what can you do to encourage this expansion of school choice? Obviously, your donor dollars matter. These three groups, not to mention countless others such as Excel in Ed, EdChoice, National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, your local think tanks, even the local micro schools in your area, all play an important role to help American children thrive. If you're already working with us at Donors Trust, we are more than happy to talk with you about the best way to give to these different options isn't a way that aligns with your charitable strategy. Just give us a call. And if you aren't doing your charitable giving with Donors Trust, well, now is a terrific time to get started. Go to DonorsTrust.org to learn more about how we can help you simplify, protect, and grow your giving in a tax-friendly and principled way. And finally, if you are an education entrepreneur listening to this, or a parent taking the time to explore the best way to help your kids, thank you so much for what you do. All the discussion and battles for school choice are for naught if you aren't out there taking advantage of our American freedoms and using this power of choice. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon. Thank you.